Hi, welcome to Dream Talk Radio. This is Anne Hill, and today I'm interviewing Roger Gottlieb. Roger is a professor of philosophy at Worcester Polytechnic Institute in New York. He is the author of uh, Spirituality of Resistance and Joining Hands, and most recently his book, Spirituality, What It Is and Why It Matters. Roger, welcome. Thank you very much. My university is actually in Massachusetts. Oh, my apologies. How I could get those those states? They're both liberal, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm so glad that um, we are able to do this interview because, like I was telling you before, I, I'm I was deeply moved by your book actually, and um, wanted to first talk to you a little bit about why you wrote it. Uh, you know, there's been so many books on spirituality from all the different world traditions and a few new ones and lots of cross-disciplinary stuff. And why did you feel like this was the, the pertinent um, subject matter you wanted, to, you wanted to work on? Well, it's very interesting that even with all the vast number of books out there and the vast attempts to formulate a spiritual approach to life, which really is at least 2,500 years old, there still is an enormous amount of confusion about it, I believe, and an enormous amount of people sort of working in different corners of the elephant. You know, the old story about the guy touches the trunk and thinks it's a snake, and the guy trunk touches the tail, thinks this, that, and the other thing. So I think one of my strengths as a writer and as a thinker is the ability to give people the big picture. I'm a big picture kind of guy. I've done it in other fields, uh, like Marxism, like environmentalism, uh, like religious environmentalism. I've also been thinking about this stuff for a very long time, as I make clear in the book of my relationship with spirituality started in my teens, and I wanted to say what I had to say about it before I got so old I didn't remember anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I also think I have a few unique uh, ways to understand the concept. One is that I, with a philosophical background, I could raise certain issues of clarity, yeah. uh, talk about certain kinds of confusions, and try to present the material in a way that was both accessible and sophisticated, both critical and engaged. This is, I hope, not just a book about spirituality, but a book of spirituality. It's a spiritual approach to the concept of spirituality, but written somebody by somebody with a philosophical background. That is what my degree is, is mm -hmm. in. It's also the case that, unfortunately, sadly, a good deal of contemporary spirituality is narcissistic, self-involved, self-protective, and I would say inauthentic. Mm -hmm. Now, this doesn't distinguish it from a good deal of politics or industry or science or government or anything else. Uh, those characteristics, unfortunately, uh, fix, fix on those enterprises as well. It's not just spirituality, which is often inauthentic, but certainly religion and government and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to connect... I wanted to connect... Uh, spirituality to certain dimensions of life to which it's too often excluded and this mm -hmm. has to do with our relationship to nature and our relationship to progressive politics. Mm -hmm. I, well, I think you do an excellent job on all counts. Um, one of the things that really impressed me with the book is how you're, it's, you easily seemingly, uh, after a, a life of study, it looks really easy. You break down things into its, their component parts. Uh, for instance, the ways that I was uh, just reading, uh, rereading the the part about spirituality and nature, 
this morning and the ways in which you sort of break that down. You know, there's three different ways that that um, our engagement with nature is spiritual. I know it's nature itself and then it's sort of this animistic, you know, the spirits in nature and then it's sort of nature as the manifestation of some creator. And I just thought, that's so clear. <laughs> so it really helpful in that way. It's one of my prides is that I write clearly. Yeah. You may think what I say is drivel, but you'll know what I'm saying. Yeah. And I think that it helps because, to give you a short anecdote about this, I belong to a large Reformed Jewish temple. We have four rabbis. So I asked one of the rabbis, who's actually an American, extremely intelligent man, uh, very knowledgeable. I asked him, uh, Rabbi, what does the word spiritual mean to you? He looked at me and said, it's a nonsense word. It doesn't mean anything. I talked to a younger rabbi, a woman that she's had, who uses the word all the time, and she said, well, it's our relationship to God, the heart of our relationship to God. Now, this kind of vast difference between two people employed by the same Jewish institution is quite interesting, I think. Uh, my mother-in-law, her memory for a blessing, who lived with us for the last seven years of her life, um, was a survivor of the Holocaust. Uh, she lived to be 98, extremely intelligent, uh, and she was one of the most spiritual people I have ever met. It was like living with a spiritual teacher. She never used the term. Mm -hmm. But she was spiritual in that the many disappointments and losses, for instance, her whole family slaughtered uh, in the camps, uh, problems mm -hmm. with the health of her grandchildren, uh, her own failing physical health and mental health, uh, mental abilities never faltered. She made her peace with me slowly and, and my wife would ask her and say, Ma, how do you get up in the morning? How do you deal with these problems? She said, I work on myself. I tell myself I have to take it. And I'm still here. I look out the window at night, I see a star, and I say, I'm still alive. It's still beautiful. Yeah. And she, even in her 90s, she was able to open herself up to new things, to learn things, to develop her own emotional sophistication. Now, this extremely spiritual uh, form of life, I mean, she never used the word, I think there's something in this body of thought, these body of practices, from meditation, to yoga, to prayer, to working on yourself, like my mother-in-law said, that provides something of a solution to the human condition. I really do believe that without these virtues, a long-term satisfied life and a long-term good life, in terms of being good to other people, is extremely difficult, if not impossible. Yeah. And I really think also that there are certain problems in life for which spirituality is the only solution. And mm -hmm. I made it clear in my book that I've had some of that, we might say, difficulties with children. Uh, a first child who died after 65 days and a third child with profound mental and physical problems. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have a child with disabilities, serious disabilities, there's no way out of that except a spiritual response. The child is not going to give you a right. great career, marriage, right. grandchildren. She's not going to take care of me That's when right. I'm old. I'm going to have to take care of her till I die or become disabled myself. There's no time off. There's no graduation. It's never going to be anything else. What can I do to deal with that? Shall I become bitter? Mm -hmm. Should I become envious of other people? Shall I get angry at her? Shall I feel like a failure? What's the matter with me? Shall I hate my wife? Is it her fault? Right. All these things I can do. What's the way out? The way out is... Self-awareness, what am I going through? Acceptance, this is what I have. Gratitude, because this child is actually very emotionally wise and has a beautifully pure spirit. Mm -hmm. Compassion for her suffering and for my own suffering. Yeah. That's the only way out. It's like you're locked in a prison and there's one way out. 
But that way out requires a profound transformation, which I certainly haven't completed. I'm just working at it. I've gotten somewhat better at it over the years. The white hair is proof. Uh, yeah. You can see the white hair on the inside. <laughs> uh, and I think this goes for, you know, virtually everything in life. And I think, it, you know, what's interesting also to me is the way we're so attached to our unhappiness. Gratitude is so much more fun than envy or disappointment. It's so much better. And yet, we're attached to envy and disappointment. Yeah. You get up in the morning, can you walk? Can you breathe? Can you think? Have you eaten? Now, I would imagine that virtually everybody who's going to watch this video, everybody who's going to read my book, is not starving to death. It's probably not in a prison camp. and probably not being tortured because they angered the regime. So all of us have something to be grateful for. But we'd much rather wake up thinking, oh God, my back hurts. I've just been audited by the IRS. My wife, my husband was drank to me yesterday. I don't have a wife or a husband. I don't have a good job. I don't have any job. But all those things we have to be grateful for. We can have 90% of our body, 99% of our body in good shape. But if one ankle or one tooth or something goes wrong, that's what we think about. And that's very interesting that the spiritual response is the way out. And yet that's the door so many of us, myself included, countless, countless, countless times, refuse to take. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's true. I was telling a friend years ago um, who had a very difficult, uh, a difficult sibling who was always, you know, the victim. I was always, it, was the, it was always about him, and it was always about how, uh, you know, he was bitter about something that wasn't working right. And at, at one point, he uh, he went skiing and broke his leg, and he was laid up in bed, you know, traction and and the whole thing. And and she was telling me this story, and I said, you know, that is just. It's the perfect occasion to be grateful that it's not it's not an amputation, right? How bad do things have to get to sort of turn your mindset around and start being grateful for what is going really well, you know, for the beauty of, of the sunrise or, you know, just that act of kindness that you just experienced by some lab tech. How how bad do things have to get before that kind of, I mean, really? Do you have, does it, do, do you... It, you know, I don't want it, to, it's, it's hard to talk about spirituality, I think, without going into causality, you know, and this idea of karma, like if I don't, if I'm not grateful right now, then worse things are going to happen to me. But in a certain sense, you can see that, that story developing in people. Yes. I, I mean, I think the idea of karma is, is palpably, obviously true, not necessarily between lives, in terms of reincarnation, but just the more bitter grasping and uptight I am, the more I'm going to suffer. Now, I may also make other people suffer. I may acquire for myself a career, a lot of money. Uh, as Plato said, you know, there are people who are really disgusting scumbags, but everybody thinks they're wonderful. And actually, said Plato, they're worse off than people who are wonderful people that people think ill of. You know, the Buddha said, uh, if you understood what anger was doing to you, you would shun it like a poison. Now we have enough now in terms of uh, you know, scientific research about the effect of the so-called negative emotions on the body and, and mm -hmm. long-term attachment to uh, grief or to anger or to resentment has a debilitating effect on the immune system. Yeah. There's a question about that, therefore, makes you more likely to disease. Now that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with emotions. It means that we have to integrate them in a certain kind of mm -hmm. way. And the integration of emotions is essentially, to, to my mind anyway, uh, the business of spiritual practices. You can study this kind of 
material about the effects of chronic anger and what it does to your mm -hmm. liver. We talk about eating your liver. Right. Uh, Chinese medicine, uh, anger in the liver are intimately connected. Uh, you can study it, but how are you going to deal with it? Well, if you meditate for X minutes every day, twice a day, three times a day, and you observe your mind, or if you do a Taoist practice, the Taoist fusion meditation practice, where you let the anger out and replace it with gentleness, it's opposite emotion, uh, kindness rather, then you do it day after day after day after day. You become more aware of yourself when you're angry. Mm -hmm. uh, you allow yourself to experience the anger. I mean, anger is as natural a thing to erupt as if somebody slaps me in the face, my face is going to turn red. With the anger arising, then what do I do with it? Do I attach to it? Do I tell myself a story about it? Do I act in response? Well, I might have to act in response question of injustice, but I don't have to hold on to the anger mm -hmm. in order to respond to injustice. I mean, that's the great thing that people like Gandhi and King and Aung San Suu Kyi have mm -hmm. taught us, is that the anger is not essential for action. I think when people hear a spiritual account of experiencing and then letting go of anger, they say, what about injustice? Injustice is profound. Injustice needs to be responded to. But it doesn't have to be done with violence, either mm -hmm. emotional violence or physical violence. You know, I, I want to talk more about this this uh, issue of spirituality and emotions. I mean, I think you do a really good job in your book about talking about and being aware of them, but not sort of in, indulging, not indulging your emotions. And that really struck a chord with me because, you know, particularly in earth religions, which is my, you know, 20-some-odd years of experience uh, in this sort of spiritual but not religious camp, um, I think the two are conflated quite a bit. I think especially when you add activism in the sense of, you know, wanting to, to act against injustice, I think what I've seen happen is that we mistake strong emotion for spirituality. And so, therefore, anybody who can whip up a crowd and make people feel outrage is somehow, I mean, that's insane to me. Like, how is that a connection to the divine? How is that a connection? That, how is that increasing my compassion, as you would say, or my sense of gratitude and kinship, right? I don't think it's the same, but that tends to be the mode that's just like, it's like, oh, let's put the, the, the needle down on the record. Let's play that old tune. That'll... You know, that'll whip up the crowds and get people onto the blockade lines and so forth. I just, I don't exactly know how to counter that. And because it seems like the countering is, is what you're talking about in terms of let's just, let's just be mindful. And that's just not as sexy as, you know, let's be angry. Let, right? Right, right. Well, I think there are a number of different things going on. One is what my teacher, my not living teacher, but a man who certainly one of the most influential people for me, Soren Kierkegaard, would say it, it, religion is not aesthetic, the way he put it, which I would translate as spirituality is not a matter of experiences. Feeling good, or feeling bad, or feeling high, or feeling low, or feeling excited, or seeing an image of God, that's not the essence of spirituality. These experiences may lead you to something, as, for instance, taking LSD might lead you to something, but... If you take LSD, if you have an ex a cosmic experience of oneness with God, in an hour or two or four or eight, that experience is going to fade. And then the question is, how does it shape your life after that? Mm -hmm. So any experience in and of itself is only at best an element in a process in what some people call the spiritual path. And what you do 
after the intensity of the experience fades is what makes it is what makes it spiritual because that's what's going to lead further in terms of your developing your ability to live by the spiritual virtues, by acceptance and gratitude and awareness and compassion and love. The second element that's going on now is that we live in a society in which experiential overload is chronic, which means that media, stimulation, too much food, too many drugs, too much coffee, I just had some, so if I'm talking too fast, let me know. And there's the demand for more and more experience, more and more, and that's what everything in politics calls for. That's every movie. That's why the, the level of violence in movies continues to go up and up and up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the first movie in which, when somebody got shot, you saw blood. It's called Bonnie and Clyde. You know, it's oh, yeah. of, of gangsters into mm-hmm. depression. Uh, and now you've got, you know, heads rolling and blood spurting and all this kind of thing, and it's more and more and more. If you just look at the previews, it's, you know, guns, explosions, a woman's breast, guns, explosions, a woman's legs, guns, explosions, sex. I mean, that's back and forth, continuous stimulation. Mm-hmm. And we don't feel alive unless we're on some kind of roller coaster. And then, of course, we get burnt out and we have to pacify ourselves with some kind of transcolize or sleeping pill or three glasses of wine or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so this goes for politics as well. The third level is that being aroused politically, just like sexually, is the beginning of being count. Mm-hmm. Because the dominant society says, this is the way it is, this is the way it has to be, this is the way God says it's supposed to be, or reason says it's supposed to be, or the commandant or the commissar or whoever. Uh, if you're a woman, if you're poor, if you're working class, whatever, if you're black, this is your place. This is what you must accept. So there must be some kind of arousal. Now, this kind of arousal will often take the form of anger. In that sense, it's okay. The question is what comes next. What mm-hmm. do you do with that? I certainly think that it's inevitable that this be a stage in political development for many people. I'm old enough to remember when the women's movement came about, mm-hmm. and women were, justifiably, I believe, really angry. And some of them were totally rational, and some of them misinterpreted things that I or other men did, and mm-hmm. some people went too far. But so what? Of course that's going to happen. The spiritual model says you move through that. Mm-hmm. I know when I became an ardent environmentalist, I had always loved nature. It's very important to me. It sustained me through my lonely, unhappy childhood. Uh, but when I became an active environmentalist, when I got over my fear of looking at what was going on in the environment, and that sort of kept me from looking at it for many years, even though I was involved in other things politically, mm-hmm. uh, I was sort of quasi-hysterical for about two years. I mm-hmm. had people at parties and said, do you know what's happening to the coral reefs? Do you know what happens when they lock in the Philippines? I was crazy. I was just a trick. Would you just blow out the candles in your cake for God's sake? <laughs> Like if you begin a yoga practice, you're going to feel stiff, you're going to feel awkward, you're going to feel clumsy, what the hell is all this stuff? You have to go through that. Nobody magically acquires expertise in practically anything in life. I mean, there are the geniuses like Mozart who are so rare that they're not even worth talking about. The rest of us stumble along, getting a little better, falling back, making mistakes, having limited success. And the same thing, I think, goes in political life, in spiritual life, in a relationship. I've been married to the same woman for 40 years. Mm-hmm. We never considered divorce, homicide many times. Uh, it's, it's a, life is difficult. I think the other, another illusion that comes with spirituality is this ideal of perfection. 
about the Buddha sitting totally unperturbed. Nothing will ever bother him again. And then there's the translation of that idea, which is a sort of uh, embodiment of a kind of God on earth, to this spiritual teacher or that spiritual teacher. I think we've seen enough of these spiritual teachers to realize they too have their forces. They mm-hmm. have their weaknesses, they have their bad days, some of them will have worse than a few bad days, some of them are sexually exploited, some of them are attached to money. There's no place to find perfection. And that's okay, we're human. Right? We're not perfect, we're human. We're trying to be better, we can make a change, we can grow a little bit. Usually through suffering. Mm-hmm. The sad thing, in a sense, is that we tend not to grow through happiness. Occasionally. But most of the time, it's suffering. I mean, you look at France and Germany. They had to go through right. three incredible wars to realize that wars were not really a great way to solve problems. It took them three times. Okay, there'll never be another war between France and Germany. Europe had to go through 200 years of violent, religious, horrible religious conflict. Right. Then they mm-hmm. got the Enlightenment. The Islamic world is going through that now. Eventually, yeah. the Islamic world will, in and of itself, say... Blowing up people at random because you're irritated is not really a great response. Sadly, a tremendous number of people have to suffer. That's right. Sadly, we have tend to have to suffer. We have to play out the illusion of greed, of control, of dominance, the pursuit of fame, the pursuit of money, all these kinds of things. We have to play it out. And then we see, no, this doesn't work. Contentment is better than that struggle. Compassion is better than hatred. It feels better. That makes me a lot more fun to be around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just talking about this with a couple friends the other day, how uh, the the cultural shifts just take so long, and it's this imperceptible, really an imperceptible route. If you're living in the days where you brought up the early uh, women's movement, if you're living in those days, you know, just like, how okay, here's another brick wall. Guess I'll hit my head against it, you know, for like 30 some odd years. And then suddenly, you know, things change. The, the You know, gay rights, okay, suddenly marriage is legal. And it, it feels like, and it is, a huge shift, cultural shift, and yet it's been made up of all of these moments where there's been this choice, people have been confronted with the choice, and and good, bad, or indifferent, whatever choices that they all sort of accumulated, so that if there's a brick wall, you know, gradually there's this little pile of stones that you can sort of climb. Everyone climbs over it, and it's tipped. It's tipped. It's pretty remarkable. I feel like it's the sort of the miracle of our of our age that this is really happening, and it's and it's visible within a lifetime. Well, I think it's extraordinarily interesting. That- complex balance of a culture, of a society, in the same way that there isn't a person, which is to say that certain things just change. And that's it, they're finished. The Jews were let out of the ghetto by Napoleon. Uh, Gay people can now get married. Uh, A woman can be Secretary of State. But that's really quite remarkable. On the other hand, sometimes things seem to change, and they undergo what I called in my early Marxist books, transformative maintenance. Mm-hmm. So you maintain the essential power relations, even though something's transformed. So if you look at the accumulation of violence against women in a society, I'm not sure if it's gone down. It may have gone up. Mm-hmm. If you look at the insane relationship uh, to women's bodies, you know, about weight and, and mm-hmm. appearance and all this kind of thing, and youthfulness, that's, I think that's worse. And it's spread to men and young and boys. So you never know. It's very hard to tell what really has been dispensed with, has been Mm -hmm. taken care of. We don't have to think about that anymore, and what has taken a new form. 
And the same thing with a person. You might think, well, I'm over my drive for success, my drive for fame. I mean, I, like many people, don't think I've had the enormous level of success to which I certainly deserve. Uh, you watch them. You know, I watch them. And I say, well, there it is again. I thought I was finished with that. There it is again. I'm nervous about this. I feel disappointed about that. I'm angry because my publisher didn't promote that. Why didn't my book get reviewed by so-and-so? The best I can say is that that voice is now less loud. I take it less seriously. I give him a hug. I put him in the corner. I give him an ice cream cone. And he quiets down. The voice is still there. I don't, I'm not sure it'll ever be gone. Right. On the other hand, I have learned over the years to be more compassionate for other people, mm -hmm. probably because I've seen all the mistakes and failures of which I've been guilty. Mm -hmm. There's no better antidote to arrogance than personal failure. And I've had plenty of those, and I don't just mm -hmm. mean in terms of career things, but in terms of trying to do something that was really important, I didn't know how to do it. I was too eager. I didn't mm -hmm. know how to ask for help. Uh, I blew it so many times. Uh, Looking at other people's personal foibles, I see a mirror of, oh, well, look at yours, Roger, this, 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 this. Great source of, of humility. <laughs> Self-knowledge is really a great source of humility. Yes, if yes. If it's combined with knowledge. <laughs> Very true. Let's talk about, and, um, let's talk about the, the, the phrase spiritual but not religious. You start out the book by talking, sort of framing it in this way and, and as a sort of an easy entry into the broader themes that you bring out in your book. Um, but I wanted to sort of talk about that phrase because it's, uh, it's ubiquitous, right? Just, just about everybody I know is spiritual, not religious. Even if they do, even if they're practicing Catholics, they, they'll say that. And it's become a kind of a proxy for uh, non-observant or lightly observant, you know, and, and I wonder, and, and it's a, a status on Facebook, for heaven's sake, so, you know, spiritual, not religious, there's a thing, <laughs> and, and in one sense, I, I get it, I get that, and I feel like, yeah, that's, that describes me, you know, I was raised Christian, and then I turned to paganism, and then I'm kind of, I, I just look for, for moments of awe, that's that's pretty much my gig, you know. If you can feel awe, I can talk to you about spirituality or in whatever uh, ecumenical setting we're in. But I also feel like, yeah, okay. It's also sort of uh, looking at the um, nu nutritional, you know, s facts on a on a box of whatever it is. It's a kind of a light thing. I I feel like it is an allowance for people to not dig deeper and not to wrestle, right? Okay. To the degree that, right, you wrestle with God. If you're spiritual but not religious, does it kind of give you a, a hall pass out of that class? Well, it can. Again, there are hall passes in every form of life. Mm -hmm. uh, you can be a communist and not interested in human liberation, as Marx was, but really just interested in your own position within the party and getting a higher up level on the party. Uh, you can be a Catholic and not be particularly interested in what Jesus said and just interested in protecting the church and on and on. There are countless examples. You can be a scientist and basically in the pay of the drug industry. Uh, so there are all sorts of ways, I would say, to fail to live up to the essential values, the essential goals of any form of human endeavor. To me, spiritual but not religious has to do with a constellation of shifts from traditional religion to the present. Interestingly, to begin with, we can notice that there is no single value of 
people who say they're spiritual but not religious that you cannot find in the tradition. That's why there are sections in the right. book of the spiritual teachings right. of Jesus, of Mahayana Buddhism, of Sufism, and of Hasidism. Acceptance and awareness and compassion and love, and even, especially in the case of Sufism, a critique of doctrine and Buddhism mm -hmm. as well, a critique of any verbal attachment to a verbal form of doctrine, to this belief or that belief, right. is very common in the tradition of Sufism. But what the difference is, is the two things. One is a modern devaluation of metaphysics. And by that I mean any attachment to treating claims about God, heaven, the afterlife, uh, revelation, treating those claims as literal. Mm -hmm. That has been undermined by the rise of science and by the coexistence of such radically different metaphysical pictures. It's one thing if you live in a little village in France in the 12th century and the only metaphysical picture is that of traditional Catholicism. But now, and for the last couple of hundred years, and it only increases with time, now we live in a world in which there are countless different metaphysical pictures. This God, that God, these gods, this one, the other one. It's too much. None of them have any evidence for them. All of them, if taken literally, are incompatible. Right. We've come no closer in the last 300 years of this coexistence to any kind of providing any evidence that one is true. So we get over it. And you can see, that's why in the book there's a sort of fixation with Kierkegaard, that this is not essential to living out the spiritual virtue. So one thing is a detachment from metaphysics. Necessarily, along with this kind of detachment of metaphysics, is a detachment from sort of totally being having kind of privacy for one tradition over others. If the key thing <coughs> the key thing in spiritual life is the spiritual virtues, awareness, acceptance, gratitude, compassion, and love, if this is what's essential, then if being a Buddhist gets Mr. Smith there, and being a pagan get, gets Miss Hill there, and being whatever I am gets me there, then it's really not important. Then we can talk together, we can learn about it. We can share our insights, and this has happened. There are Buddhist-Christian dialogues, and what they call the Jubus, the Jews who became Buddhist but still hold, hold on to their Judaism, and so forth. Right. And so on. Or the uh, Jubu witch. I've done a few of those. Right. So, along with that, if you're not attached to the literal truth, or the soul truth of your tradition, comes less of an attachment to the institution. Now, you know, one needs to be ambivalent about institutions, right? On the one hand, they're a drag, and they're self-protecting, and they accumulate money and power, and power usually goes to men. Uh, that's just unpleasant in so many different ways. On the other hand, you'd like there to be a building and a school to teach your children. They'd like right. to be able to accumulate some kind of expertise in understanding these matters. So that moves back and forth. So the people who are spiritual but not religious have a yearning for the resources of spirituality, but without the metaphysics, and without the institutions. Mm -hmm. They also have a profound distaste, I think, for the flaws of institutional religion, which also often have to do with patriarchy, with male domination, uh, with blindness to, for many years, blindness to the environmental crisis, uh, for a kind of primitive nationalism that you often get with certain kinds of religions, and with the kind of horrible self-protection that's evidenced right. by the Catholic Church in terms of the sex abuse scandal. Yeah. All those things turn people off to religion. Now, I would simply, I, would, I totally you know, think that's fine. I would just caution people not to forget, as I mentioned before, that you have comparable problems in the secular world. Mm -hmm. You have comparable problems in the world of science, in the world of art, in the world of radical politics. Human foibles are everywhere. I have 
for my whole adult life and so far to the political left that I can't even fall off the planet. <laughs> and my friends have often said to me, how can you do all this religious stuff? Because I've done seven or eight books on religion. I've taught often in religious institutions. Religions are horrible. I say, what do you think of Martin Luther King? Well, he was great, you know? It's right. I said, you know, he was not an insurance man. Yeah. He was a carpenter. He was a reverend. Yeah. And Stalin, if you want to take me a careful note of it, was secular. So, mm-hmm. you want to chalk, line up the failures of religion? Great. Line up the failures of the secular world as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, the World Bank, which is responsible for all kinds of horrible environmental atrocities, is a secular organization. Mm-hmm. And the Taliban is a religious organization and responsible for all sorts of horrible atrocities. The point is not that they're either secular or religious. The point is that they're horrible. Right. And and this is a really important conversation to have in a democratic country where there's a separation of church and state, and may it remain intact, you know? Right. Well, I mean, I've written about that in, in some of my other work, and I think the, the caution there is to realize uh, that in the very, 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 very broad sense of the term, you cannot, you cannot not have religion in public life. That is mm-hmm. to say right. that some organized perspective of general foreseeing values is absolutely necessary. Not necessary in the sense that it would be a good thing to have it and we suffer if we don't. But you cannot do business without it. If we have to decide whether or not to develop a wetland or how to teach sex in the public schools, we're going to be employing some kind of large-scale values. Now, whether you get those values from Buddha or Christ or the Talmud or Ayn Rand or Thomas Jefferson or Karl Marx or Newt Gingrich, you're going to have them. Right. You cannot simply decide these things intelligently by one person, one vote, the pursuit of individual interest. You have to decide mm-hmm. what's important for us as a society. And in that sense, religion is always part of a democratic country. Mm-hmm. The point is you don't support any particular institution. Right. You, don't, you don't force people into certain kind of metaphysical beliefs. But ultimately, if we develop the wetland because we think we need another moral, and thereby we extinguish some endangered species... Well, then we've decided what's important. Mm-hmm. Conversely, if we teach sex by saying it's not just mechanical, part A to part B, but sex is also about respect, it's about care, it's about appreciation of this incredible gift that God or creation or evolution gave us with our bodies and therefore should be undertaken with great respect and love. That's another particular attitude mm-hmm. that we bring. Right. And I think right. spirituality, bringing spirituality into public life doesn't just mean talking about meditation, though that's good, or bringing meditation into medicine, as I've talked about in the book, though that's fabulous. It means saying, what are the values that we're going to hold as a society? Mm-hmm. Now, ultimately, there's no final justification for any set of values. It's not like we can find God to endorse them. Say we did, but we didn't, really. Uh, or that we can prove them by some arcane sense of rationality. But what we can do is say, look, if we live by compassion, if we live by awareness, if we say that teaching our children self-awareness and gratitude is as important as teaching them mathematics and English and how to do use computers in the workplace, then this is the kind of society we'll have. And I'm willing to bet it's going to be a lot better than what we have now. How do I know? I can't be sure. But I will sketch in as much detail as possible. Right. This is what we can And as you say in the close of your book, it is enough that it ever was and that we were here with it. Um, 
thank you so much for your contributions to this dialogue. I share your feeling that this is it's it's really the essential thing that we need to do on at all levels, from the neighborhood to school board to county seat to state and and national. So, uh, Roger Gottlieb, author of Spirituality: What It Is and Why It Matters. Um, Excellent book. I highly recommend it, especially for communities who want to take up these kinds of issues. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Okay.